Let's Roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for ranks, flanks, and kings of war. as they delve into the world of Panathor and bring you worldwide coverage of all things Kings of War. Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Andy Patton. And I'm Rough Enough. And as you heard, we have a new guest on the show for the first time. He has not been on the show. In fact, Andy, you, you don't even play Kings of War yet. I don't. Not a single bit right now. Well, before we get there, let's do a little introduction. Uh, Andy is the newest member at War Room Hobbies. How's the experience uh, to, to transitioning into working at War Room been for you? Pretty nice. I have played less games, <laughs> but I've been around it a lot more. So it's I, I love the environment. We should tell everybody right up at the front, you are a highly, highly, highly competitive 40K player. In fact, I looked you up, Andy. It says you're 234 out of, I don't know, 12,000. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't know how many 40 K players we have in the U S but you're 234. And I imagine the only reason why you're not higher is because you don't travel enough. Uh, that, that's correct. Yeah. I came in fourth at the American team championships and finished seventh in the Southeast, which is where the number one team in the, in the world is the art of war team. So how long have you been playing 40 K? I started playing 40 K in 2004 pushing 20 years at this point what is it about 40k that is exciting and, and keeps you coming back for more every game is different i've never had two games play out the same way and uh at the higher levels it, it really is a i mean there's the it's a skill-based game it's I, I like it yeah and you also play a fair amount of magic i think correct what other game systems are you currently playing as far as war gaming i guess tabletop gaming Right now, those are the only two games that I play. Uh, oh, uh, other than Battletech. That was the first game I ever actually played. That's awesome. Is it fair to say you would describe yourself as a competitive tabletop wargamer? Yeah, it's, it's hard to turn that off. If your passion is that interaction with the person across the table and that that puzzle of trying to figure out what's the optimum decisions, that competitive fire probably burns deep. Uh, yeah, I grew up bowling Every weekend, I bowled collegiate and then professionally afterwards, and that just kind of kicked it off. My entire family's competitive. Our board game nights are cutthroat. Um, it's, it's insane. So when I started getting into the wargaming aspect of of all of my hobbying, it just kind of fell right in with everything else. Well, what we're going to do tonight is, is something unique. You know, we've got Andy on the show, and he's had a chance to read through some of the rules. He's had a chance to actually build an army list and look at the armies, but you've not actually played your first game yet. So it's going to be interesting to document your your perception or your observations of the rules at this point, and then we'll circle back after you've had a couple of games under your belt. You know how the, how that has changed. Let's start at the top. You know why the interest in Kings of War? Is it just because you want to crush Jeff Bodine? <laughs> Jeff is one of my 40k teammates and a good friend of mine. Uh, for one, and I do enjoy kicking the crap out of him. Probably about as much as he enjoys kicking the crap out of me. I do want to crush him. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I was a competitive Warhammer Fantasy player back in 7th, 8th edition mm -hmm. Warhammer Fantasy. A lot of the guys that are in the area here, one, used to crush me about 10 years ago in Fantasy, and 
I, I got to return the favor. So let's set the stage. At this point, in, you're getting into Kings of War. You've skimmed through the rules. You've actually looked at some of the army lists and you've created an army list. Is that a fair assessment? It is. What do you think about a game like Kings of War that has less frequent updates when you compare it to your game 40K? Does that make it more desirable, less desirable? Honestly, it's it's about the same in my opinion. The things that happens with a game like this, just from other games that I've played before, is while the rule system doesn't change, the meta is always going to shift because people are going to be creating the next best army that's going to crush, and then people have to adapt to it. And then once they adapt to it, the meta shifted again. So it's it's always going to be evolving regardless of the rules changing or not. Super interesting you bring that up because, you know, I've never really thought of it from that context. I've always held the opinion that, well, Kings of War, you know, we get like an annual update and that kind of is the is the uh, the catalyst to make the changes, which then ultimately affect the meta. But you're right internally. Like right now, greater air elementals are all the rage. People start because I think people thought, oh, well, they're maybe under costed, overpowered, whatever people took them. And now you're seeing even without a change from the rule set. People have countered that, and I think then that then that dissuades people from continuing on that current greater error elemental train. Yeah, I guess you're right in, in some sense that regardless of how the way the game is distributed, whether it's like an annual update or like in the case of 40K where you get every so often you get new army books, right? And then you get a yearly update as well. In both those scenarios, the community is going to actually be in charge of organically evolving the meta. Right. What's your initial observations of the rules? When you got done looking at them, what were your thoughts? It seems fairly streamlined for for one. All the armies use the same special rules. One of the things I don't like about 40k right now, some armies may have the same rule, but it's named 15 different things. Everybody has access to the same um, like war gear, magical items, stuff like that. And they're pretty basic in what they do, but I know at, at a high level, they kind of impact a lot of the game. And the the terrain is pretty simple. I didn't find anything in the rules that is hard to misinterpret. So that that is nice. I have described the game in the past as more uh, deterministic, maybe less random. I mean, we do still use D6s to determine results. But to your point, there's not like random terrain effects or... Is that something you picked up on? Is it, Do you feel it's like more or less deterministic from other games out there or is it pretty much the same as everything else out there no i i agree with you that it, it is quite deterministic what you decide to do will decide the game other than i mean your dice could go bad on you but for the most part kind of just there to move the game along the one thing that always that some people complain about is we have the uh uh, exceptional results for a nerve test where you roll double ones and the the then even if you route them you don't route them right so you know potentially it's a one in 36 chance right that you, that you hit a one double one but if you hit it at the wrong time it, it could be key but i don't prescribe to the belief that that's significantly impactful on the game it doesn't happen that often and it happens even less when it's at the critical moment of the game right any mechanics jump out at you when you look through all these rules and stuff is there anything you're like oh that's an interesting mechanic Competitive guy may use the word exploit, but uh, an opportunity to uh, to to leverage. Um, not really. the The biggest thing that popped out to me in general in is no rolling for charge distance. Right, that's a big thing from Eighth Edition, right, where you would take double your speed 
or double your move plus a D6, I think. I can't remember. It's been so long, but I know I know random charges was a thing in 8th edition. Right. Does 40k have random tar- charge distances? They do. You could fail a 3-inch charge even with a 10-inch movement guy if you're rolling bad for the day. <laughs> I typically prescribe to deployment and movement are the key in this game, right? And the fact that those are not random, I think, is uh, helpful to keeping the game in your control. I think it increases the skill base a lot. One thing that I'm dying to ask you is, you know, we we have variable game length, right? So after six, we roll a four plus and we play a seven turn. Is that a common thing? Because I don't play as many games as you. And number two, what's your opinion on that? In the last recent edition and in the last edition of Warhammer that actually had a variable game length. So they stopped that in the current edition that I'm playing. And I think it helps in list building to have a fixed game length. Whereas you can't plan 100% of your game out if you don't know how long the game's going to go. So you can get a general idea, but you're kind of just... Sometimes you just got to cross your fingers, man, and hope you don't roll four plus. (laughs) When you say that, instantly jumps to the chess clocks. We typically, in a competitive environment, in a tournament, commonly we're going to be using chess clocks. Is that common in other game systems that you're playing today? Yes. Making sure each player has the same amount of time and 40k ultimately can only be done with a chess clock. In high competitive play, it's done at pretty much all of the top tables. In Kings of War, you are in control of your turn and you roll all the dice. You, know, you roll the hit, you roll the damage, you roll the, the, the nerve test. And really your opponent just, their only job is to pick up units. In 40K, is that the same? Or, or, or when you roll dice and you do attacks and you do you damage, I guess they have ward saves or something that they have to roll on your turn, right? Correct. They have to do all their saving throws, do casualties and all that themselves. But so there, there is a lot of back and forth on the clock. So clock management is a bit of a headache sometimes in 40K. So when you roll the damage and they have to do saving throw, do you throw the clock back to them and then they do their saving throws on their clock? You're supposed to. Not everybody does it. That's a lot of back and forth, I guess. Right. So I got 15 units that I have to do shooting with and then he has to roll saves for and remove casualties and then do the same thing when we come back to the assault phase where I have to roll dice to fight and then he has to remove casualties after and saves and whatnot. So potentially with 15 units, it's potentially 30 times it goes back and forth or for that turn. We I mean, really comparing it to 40 K, but you know, how does this game compare to your memory of, you know, eighth edition Warhammer fantasy battles It is very similar. I'm still a little confused on some of the list building aspects, but it looks like if I built a list that I wanted to be able to score in most of the scenarios I was looking at, I kind of have to take a little bit of everything, and when I do that, I'm already unlocking everything I want to play, so it didn't really come into a bottleneck anywhere for me. That may change in the future, as far as right now. I kind of like it. If you're playing like a combined arms or a an all-comers list that are trying to play to all the scenarios, inevitably you end up taking the units that'll unlock the other stuff. Essentially, regiments unlock hordes unlock and you know they unlock both troops and then they, uh, they the special selections like heroes war engines monsters slash titans and you did build a list we'll, we'll get to that list in a minute but you did mention scenarios what were your thoughts on the scenarios they're all different as another problem 40k has is their scenarios are all kind of variations of the same thing 
I mean, you've got kill scenarios, you've got objective scenarios, scenarios where you have to, like, take control of areas here. Missions I'm used to right now are just kill guys and take this small objective on the board, and that's that's kind of it. We talked about the game being deterministic. One of the things that is interesting is there's, in uh, a more recent edition of the scenarios, is this bluff token mechanic that came in third, where you've got a basically five tokens, two worth zero, two worth one, and one worth two. And your opponent has the same thing and you deploy them, but you only know what you've put down, right? And they only know what they put down. What do you, what's your thoughts on that type of scenario? Cause that's a little different than, well, certainly than most of the other scenarios that we have in our book, you're playing either objective markers or loot tokens, or as you said, area control. There used to be a mechanic like that, that in other games I've played, there is a little bit of randomness in it for, of course, for you. Can you game it? Maybe. If I'm winning the game by taking a whole bunch of objectives, probably hitting all of those bluff counters, or most of them anyway. If you're playing the game, just take as many bluff tokens as you can, even even though you don't know half of their point value. If you're successful in that pursuit, you're probably still going to win the game. It's really almost just like the margin of that victory. Here's my million-dollar question for you. You haven't played a game yet. You look at the scenarios. Do you want to go first or do you want to go second? Always plan to go second. What reason are you always looking to go second? Because it's the only one that I can guarantee is going to happen more often. Sometimes I want to pick to go second and most opponents want to go first. So if they win the roll-off and go first, then I'm already going second. If I win the roll-off and I want to go second, then I can choose that. You know, looking at the scenarios, what advantages does going second give you? It just lets me see what my opponent is trying to do before I make any decisions, other than my deployment, of course. And is that the same in 40K, or is in 40K there's lots of opportunities where you want to go first? 40K, you definitely want to go first in, in most scenarios. Most, I mean, a lot of armies can just decimate 75% of your list on the first turn if messed up, basically. All right, well, let's talk about this. You're not known as the biggest hobby guy. I am not. Is there anything in the rules that kind of like, hey, I'm not a big hobby guy, but maybe this will incentivize you to hobby or make it easier on you? Is there anything in the rules that, hey, this this is interesting from a hobby perspective? Yeah, I don't have to have, you know, what is it, like 40 models in my horde, for example. As long as I represent it correctly, I think the rule said I have to have like 75%. We used to have a thing called minimum model count, which was basically the previous size unit plus one. And I think the reason why that evolved is that some people were kind of taking a piss. You know, they'd show up with a unit that's got like four models on it and it's supposed to be a horde. Yeah. They had to put something in there. And so now what we've done is rather than being a punishment, it's sort of like a positive thing. Like, hey, in, in hobby scores, they'll say, oh, if you ha- if you meet PMC, which is 75% of the, the unit size, th- then you get like a bonus maybe to, to your paint score, for example. At the end of the day, I think in general, most tournaments are going to tell you that make it look cool. Make it look full. Playing a unit of ogres, have something that's the right size for an ogre so that you don't confuse your opponent. I think the goal for everybody is just to have a unit that clearly shows, showcases to your opponent what it is. Let's talk about, you did look at some of the armies. Your first pick is is Empire of Dust. Kind of walk me through, you've looked at these armies. How did you come to that? How did you come to, to Empire of Dust? Just the aesthetic. That kind of drew me a little bit. I knew I wanted to play some type of undead purely based on aesthetic. And then I just kind of started looking at the rules between the two. The, the Shambling was kind of a, 
a thing there so they look like a slower army to get across the table the surge mechanic is something that i think is pretty interesting and um, empires of dust had a lot more opportunities for surging than than like regular undead yeah or forces i mean there there are other armies like forces of nature can do it as well i think one of the interesting things that 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 when you said empire of dust you know empire of dust has the ability to surge some really big mamma jammas, some big monsters and stuff. And I think for me, like just an interesting dynamic, being able to shove like a, a bone giant in the flank of somebody, right. It is a, you know, it is interesting. So to be fair, I think the other thing that we didn't really mention, well, everybody knows this, but if you're a shambling unit, that means you're fearless. And so there's some resiliency in knowing that, yes, I'm slow coming across the table, but I don't waver. So I, I know I'm going to move the five inches or whatever per turn because I'm not going to waver. Regular Undead does have a lot more non-shambling units like ghouls and vampires, werewolves. And I, I think the bulk of the Empire Dust is shambling. So, And to your point, too, I think aesthetically, it is very similar to what we used to play with the Tomb Kings. What armies did you play when you were playing Warhammer Fantasy Battles? I played Lizardmen, I played Skaven, and I played Vampire Counts. So those those are the three main armies that I played. When you're going into a new game, you don't really want to play the old game, right? You're kind of like, I mean, going with Empire Dust is kind of like a fresh slate. You're starting over and you get to learn something from the ground up rather than, for example, if you were like, I want to play Rackin. You know, I wonder if you were playing Rackin, all the old Skaven stuff would come to you and maybe it would actually hurt you because Rackin army is not a Skaven army. They play very differently. It's a positive thing by picking a clean you know, a fresh army. I don't know. I agree with that, actually. Well, I remember the rules from when I was playing Skaven, and I was looking over the Ratkin as it was potentially my first pick. So, and I just did not want to make that mistake of going, this unit can do this just because I'm getting old and not realizing that was a Skaven rule and not a Ratkin rule. I think back in like the the first Uncharted Empires book in second edition, when Rackin first came out, there was like a direct corollary from Skaven to Rackin. But as the game has evolved, it's become its own thing. And I think there's been a conscious effort to go, look, this is this is not a rat this is not a Skaven army. This is a Rackin army. I mean, take dwarves, for example. I mean, the, the dwarves have berserkers riding angry badgers. You know, having cavalry was never a thing in, in Warhammer. And that's just one example where they're they are trying to differentiate themselves from the Warhammer days of yore, even though there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of na- corollaries in terms of, yes, there is a, you know, quote unquote, Tomb King army. So Empire of Dust, you sent me a list. We're going to talk about it, but what software did you use? Was this Mantic's Companion? And how did you find the software to use? Was it straightforward? Was it difficult? It's, it's fairly straightforward. So this kind of logged in, subscribed. One, if you just want to build a list, I, I didn't have to subscribe to do that, but I wanted to kind of look at some of the rules as I was building. Mm-hmm. Once I subscribed, I was able to do that. As far as just putting units in, it's fairly straightforward. This is my, <laughs> do I want this upgrade? What artifacts do you want on it? Hit the plus sign, move on to the next one. It, just in terms of Mantic Companion, how does it compare to what the other game systems are offering in terms of an army builder i mean is it is it it like like what everybody else is using in other game systems or is it different like i said i don't know like how do you build a list in aos or how you build a list in 40k or how you listen build build a list in battle tech so give me a sense of what else is out there 
No, this is actually pretty nice. 40K, if you talk to Games Workshop, they'll tell you to use their app. I don't know a single person that actually uses their app. <laughs> Everybody uses Battlescribe. And Battlescribe can be a little finicky sometimes. But this, everything's here in one place. I don't have to go through like seven different screens to find something. You just click it, opens the drop down. All of your options are there on screen. I, I liked it. It's It's pretty nice. There's other tools on there like the math hammer feature where you can obviously you probably haven't got to that yet, but you can roll through scenarios like, hey, this unit is charging this unit and here's the the options. It's hindered. It's whatever. And you can calculate out your percentages, maybe a learning tool to understand, OK, this is the unit I'm thinking. How is it going to operate in different scenarios? It's pretty new still, you know, it just came out last fall. And I think it's, there's more to it, right? They're adding more game systems to get everything. It is a subscription for the year. Is that common or is it normally just free? Normally you'll have some of it is free and then you have different options that you only get if you subscribe. So this is fairly similar. I know the Games Workshop app, you can't use at all until you subscribe. Um, but I think that one is unique in that fact. And the Warhammer one, though, is that like tied to the, what is that called? Warhammer Plus? Is that is that tied to that or is it something separate? I believe it is tied to the Warhammer Plus. Like I said, I, I don't use it, so. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned Battlescribe. You know, back in the day, I used Army Builder from, uh, was it Wolf Lair? I think yep. is the name of the company. You should love that one. Yeah, I used that back in 2010-ish. Battlescribe, the problem that I've always had with Kings of War is that because the the files are built by the community, it's inconsistent is the best way to say it. Like there's times where I'm like, I, I can't trust what I'm putting in here. But if it's coming from the company that makes the game, even if they make a mistake, it's gonna get corrected pretty quick. And then it's I think at this point, you know, I I, ha- I think it's probably like ninety-nine percent accuracy, probably uh, maybe hundred percent at this point, in terms of the content that's in Mantic Companion, because you have this whole community using it and it goes back to the you know, to the hey, there's an issue here, and then it gets resolved. Because ultimately, you don't want a list builder that tells you that you have an illegal list. That's the last thing you want, right? Or right. doesn't tell you that it's illegal, and you show up at the event, they're like, well, this isn't legal. It's like, oh, okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> what was your strategy for building this first list? I was thinking of Empires of Dust. I was thinking about Hordes of the Undead, unmoving, or unyielding. I'll say that, not unmoving, unyielding, and... The first thing that came to mind was I need to have, you know, a big unit or two that their goal is to basically just stop my opponent from doing whatever they want to do. The first thing that came to mind was the, after looking over the units, was a horde of spearmen or two hordes of spearmen is what I ended up going with here. The life leech, I like that. They're shambling. If I have to move them aggressively the casket of the damned is a very great and that's your surge yeah walk us through the list andy and kind of just as you hit each unit describe the unit and then kind of tell me or tell the listeners tell us why it's in the list you know and because because i'll be honest with you when i saw it, i was like this is an interesting list and i'm really excited to have you try this list and then You'll either probably go, oh, well, that didn't work maybe as I anticipated, or maybe there's better options to do the same thing. But it's interesting that, you know, you've actually built, most people go to a demo and I provide the list, right? Here's your list. and It's a balanced whatever. It's, here's a thousand points. or And we should say this is a 20 
10 list, 2010. And yes, it's goofy because that's what we're playing at Kings of Memphis 3. Many people say, why 2010? Well, that's when Kings of War came out. So it's kind of an homage back to when first edition was released. Why don't you walk us through your list as you're going through units? Describe how you envision them operating, why you gave them the magical artifacts that you did. Okay. Well, the the first thing I noticed when I was uh, looking at the rules of this game was the number one way to lose this game is to get out deployed. Not keeping things accessible to you or just i don't really know how to describe it if somebody has a lot more units than you they're going to kind of dictate deployment and in your army we should say only has 13 units which is probably about average at 2000 ish points because i mean you do have some expensive units in here a skeleton horde of spearmen casket of dam and the scrying gem so i think the scrying gem from somebody that hasn't played this game yet is probably going to be a list staple if if it's not in a list it's probably the last thing shaved off to put something in because i think people ultimately are going to want to have it as you deploy if you have a very fast army and you miss deploy well you just like if you have cavalry and flyers it's like okay i i can i can pivot <laughs> you know some of those guys are even nimble right so they can they can redeploy actively in the game without much effort but your entire army, just I think your entire army shambles. So it's all moving relatively slow. So if you put it in the wrong spot, it's in the wrong spot. And that's just the end of it. And so by having the scrying gem, at least there's that D3 plus one, right? You're sort of forcing your opponent's hand because in this case, it, you know, you only have the 13 units and somebody had just a few more. It might bridge that gap. And so now you're, you're on equal footing. Right. Why spearmen? Rather than just regular skeletons or revenants? A lot of the larger units, like hard-hitting, fast units, like cavalry, for example, the number one thing I saw that was making them useful, other than their speed being, you know, 8-plus on average, almost all of them have, like, thunderous charge or fly, so they're even faster. And with me being a slow army, I need to have something that can counter that and the, the phalanx rule kind of did that for me yeah so minus one against cab large cab and flyers right and stripping tc off brock riders are a good example right <laughs> this is the last thing they want to see right and most cavalry don't really want to see it so your second unit is also a second horde of spearmen and this one has the dragon shard shield what's the thought process there honestly i just wanted them to live for as long as possible so the Dragon Shard Shield, at first glance, was probably one of the best defensive special or magical artifacts I could put on. The the round that they get hit by something or out of a key turn where I need them to stay alive. Yeah, they're turning off TC, but now I'm basically denying Crush 2 at the same time. So right now, I believe they're at like a 4 defense. This puts them up to a 6 defense. And denying TC realistically against most things they're going to have a, a five plus thing is it's interesting because you know one of the negatives of the dragon shard shield is you really can't use it if you're being very immobile but on this unit what you're basically saying is i'm going to get it in a spot and it's going to hold its ground right yeah plays into the dragon dragon shard shield the other mistake that some people make is that they'll put like offensive stuff because they'll see the spearmen who have more attacks right and like a unit like this, it's already hitting on fives. Like, ah, you're doubling down on something that really doesn't matter. Because really, the last thing you want to do is 
worry about the offense. It's you just want those guys to stick around as long as you can. Now, if it's a small hero or something, certainly may, maybe you could pop a back and wipe them out. But just stay in terrain, keep those spears pointed forward, and if you've got a turn <laughs> where you can be defense six, I mean, I, th- I think it is. Uh, you know, uh, awesome. Because I mean, the other one that we do see sometimes when they make that mistake is they'll put like hammered measured force, which is you, you auto wound on fours. You're hitting on five. So 30 attacks, that's only 10 hits. So four, yeah. that's only five wounds on defense six. So yeah, is it really? And, and, and if somebody charges you with defense four, you're still wounding them on fours, right? If they charge you with defense three, you're still wounding them on fours. So I, this is that 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 one was a really great pick. I do wonder though the scrying gem, you you could certainly because you have cal you have regiments that you could dump that scrying gem onto, if you wanted to to free up something else for your horde of spearmen. Are these the last drops you put down so that you can? I mean, I guess what I wonder is if if you see a bunch of things that this would be a good counter for, you hold until you see them where they where they land, and then you. You counter deploy with these guys against the cavalry or the flyers, or and if that doesn't, and if that's not in the opponent's army, are you just thinking you'll just maybe anchor a flank with them? What's your what's your deployment strategy going into your first game <laughs> for these skeleton spearmen? <laughs> I think it depends on the scenario pretty heavily. So if I if I need to get across the table, or they're there not to kill stuff, like like you said, they're a defensive unit. The whole point of them is to basically deny can deny an area of the table from my opponent if i have a you know the the two point objective counter or something there you get what i'm saying wherever the majority of my objectives are i i need to deny that for my opponent so if that means i have to put them on a flank and put the rest of my army on the the other side of them or just put them dead center of the table and say i'm going to control 80 percent of this table uh good luck yeah, the, the other piece that's probably important to know too is hordes are great because in a game like Pillage, where you have to have the tokens 12 inches apart and you have to be within three inches of a token to apply your unit strength to control it, there's the potential that a Spearman horde like this could control two tokens, right? You could, Depending on where the tokens land, and obviously you deploy some of those tokens, uh, there's the potential where you, you can hold two tokens, uh, which is uh, a, a big, big boon, right? Because then that allows your other stuff to go do what they need to do. Well, let's talk about your skeleton warriors. The first two units that I actually put in here were two regiments of skeleton warriors. Um, and I didn't want to upgrade them to have the, uh, what I call a great weapon or, or anything like that. You do lower defense and you get plus one crushing strength. Yeah, with me hitting on fives, crushing strength doesn't matter. The two regiments were there solely because I thought they were point for point one of the best unit strengths for the army, and they're there just to score me points. I mean, 85 points naked for a dash 15 is pretty good, right? Like, yeah, yeah I mean, yes, to your point, they, they don't have any offensive punch, really, but they could certainly tie something up, something small, uh, because they are defense for it. They could tie them up for a couple turns possibly three turns like a giant i mean if the giant any, well anything that hits on fours against this i mean fours are so swingy like you, you could you could survive two or three rounds uh with one of these regiments of course the casket for large surge if i have to move them and then three troops of skeleton warriors built the exact same way 
those are for yeah, I can use those for scoring too. But the big thing is they are they're chaff, they're screens for basically forcing my opponent to deal with them and delay them or force them into into the horde basically of spearmen. That's probably less likely to happen, but they're gonna have to deal with my troops regardless. You've got Casket of the Damned on all of your units. So you've got one, two, three, four, five. You have, you have seven caskets. What's the thought process there? Casket just seems really good, man. Uh, if I need to throw a uh, a troop unit into an enemy unit, for example, um, of course they, they get their movement and then I can search them afterwards. I don't get the the opportunity to double time them because they're shambling. Mm-hmm. So just being able to throw a troop squad into a flank of a or rear of a unit if it's in combat with something just to kind of stall them there is kind of my idea. And we should say a casket of the dam, you know, once per game, uh, when you cast, when you, when you target surge on that unit, you get an extra six dice, right? I guess where I'm coming from, we're going to get to it, but you know, one of the things I noticed is you don't have a lot of surge in the list. And so I think you only have the only person that has surge is the Ammonite Pharaoh. Is that right? No, sorry. No, you've also got the Revenant Champion. So the Revenant Champion's got surge five, and then you've got the Ammonite Pharaoh on a chariot with uh, surge eight. So, okay. It's interesting because I I think one of the things it does do is that it forces people to think of anything as everything as as a threat, right? Because any of those units can be surged eight or five. And either one of those, either one of those would, would add six to it. And you know, for, for 10 points, it's not that, not that costly. Right. Yeah. I think the, the opportunity cost is high. Let's get into your heroes. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go into the formation first. Yes. Let's do that. So I, I did like the idea of formation. Um, I like Basically, my entire army is a giant anvil currently that we've gone through so far, and I feel like these the Revenant chariots are a pretty good hammer to go along with them. So the legion of Revenant chariots that I'm required to take in the Bone Shaker formation mm-hmm. looks like they hit pretty hard. <laughs> they hit on fours, and you have Thunder Charge 2. There's probably other stuff that maybe hits a little harder. Like, uh, well, no, I'm probably not. I mean, I, hitting on fours with Thunder Charge 2 is a respectable amount, right? But then they also have Rampage D6. The things you're going to shove these into, you're not going to shove these into D6, right? Typically, unless you have to. Uh, you've added Sir Jesse's Boots of Striding to this, which is a great choice because this is a big unit. It's This unit probably will be hindered at some point, right? And the last thing you want to do is to, is to go to five because it's just like, ugh, going to five. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the, interesting. So the first first unit in the Bone Shaker formation, you, you take a, you took a legion with the the boots of striding. What else is in the formation? So I'm required to take two other regiments of chariots. One of them I ended up with the Brew of Haste. It's a good choice. Now you're speed nine. I think in this game, speed speed matters. If everything's the same speed, it's easy to counter. Mm-hmm. But if you have different speeds. Right, so you've got a bunch of things that charge eight, but there's one in there that charges nine. It's like okay, well, and then the fact you also have the surge mechanic, like it's yeah. it's much more difficult to 
counter that because, you know, in some races, they don't know. I mean, if you want to, I mean, surge eight and you have surge five for what surge 13, potentially <laughs> that's six or seven extra inches makes people think a hundred percent. So the whole idea with the, the chariots was pretty much that. So in order for my opponent to, to kind of guesstimate when they're going to be hit by them, uh, notice I didn't say if, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, when they're going to be hit by the chariots, it's pretty much a, a toss up. So it could be this turn. It could be next turn. It depends on what I'm trying to do. And the, the, of course the dice matter here too. For that other regiment, I did end up taking blood of the old King. Blood of the old King is an interesting choice. Uh, what's the thought process there? I've got brutal and the rampage and thunder charge already. And I'm not worried about damaging myself as much with having life leech. And one of my other characters has heal and drain life. Yes. Like I said, I'm not too worried about taking wounds on myself. Mm-hmm. The re-rolling ones to hit every rolling ones to wound from elite melee and vicious melee for one turn. Just could be really good. I think for one of the, these smaller chariot units to, uh, a- after adding that rampage in, they basically hit just as hard as a Legion does. Um, on that first charge. Yeah, I mean, having Elite and Vicious for a turn uh, helps mitigate some of the fact, some of the, you know, you're hitting on fours, right? And you have, and you have the Thunder Charge too. So it does, it does mitigate, it does mitigate some of that. So uh, it's going to be interesting, you know, because, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a very popular choice because um, even though it does give you that one turn, and first of all, it's not that expensive at 15 points, but there's, there's a cost there, right? Which is if I use it, and I have to roll a bunch of ones, re-roll ones and t- ones for hitting and ones for uh, damaging, I take wounds. And you are only a dash 16, so it, it, it could potentially, on the counter punch, you know, if, if you've done enough. I mean, your hope is that you get the charge and you kill whatever's there, right? And hopefully that probably means you're combo charging with other stuff. You're not charging it by itself. Right. They don't punch you back. Ideally, what would happen is once you've killed that other unit, that unit that's got that's that's used blood of the old king maybe has enough time to maybe get a couple heals or drain life cast on them. I mean, that's what's great about heal and drain life. I mean, the drain life is great because you can you can then charge that unit into combat, cast drain life on the unit you've just charged, and then potentially heal the the unit back. Or if you're not within range, because you know drain life only has the six inch range, you could still then cast heal on on the unit. Um and heal five is is pretty good. That's kind of my idea on that. And then of course now getting into my my heroes, uh, I am required to take a Revenant Champion cavalry unit for the last part of this formation. Mm-hmm. Looking at his profile, he does not look like a a very killy character. As a character or as a hero, he hits on fours. Um, he is defense five, but he only has four attacks. That wasn't very impressive for me. So. My goal with him isn't to be in combat. Yes, he's got man, or Rampage D3, but he does not actually have the TC that the normal Revenant Cavalry units have, even after getting his mount. He just has the Crushing Strength 1. He doesn't hit hard. So I threw Surge on him to be just one uh, an easy way to Surge pretty consistently. I threw on Boots of the Seven Leagues to give him Scout, because he is one of my only units that is not ship. So with Boots of the Seven Leagues, I can scout move him and 
of course, uh, th- that will time him up the table. Yeah, like it had to double at the beginning of the game. So you can right. potentially put some pressure on people because he does have a speed eight, right? Your point, though, is that he doesn't have a lot of attacks, but potentially you could throw out a threat. What I was looking at with the Boots of Seven Leagues is because this guy does not shamble and he's actually fairly quick at speed eight, giving him that free move early could get me onto loot counters and start pulling them back onto my side of the table at at a very early spot in the game instead of having to uh you know shamble up the table into those i I know i'm going to be playing against other faster armies almost every game having a way to grab some of those loot counters and then come behind my big defensive wall (laughs) uh with those was kind of my hopes for this guy you're making the best use out of the thing they made you take to get the other cool thing other cool three units in the formation well, what else is in your list? You've got a couple characters still that we haven't talked about. I've got the an Ammonite Pharaoh on Royal Chariot. I did upgrade him to a Spellcaster 3. Uh, he's fairly defensive with Defensive 5-17. Big thing for him was um, I gave him Raz the Undying. Given what you've got there with all those chariots hitting on 4s, being able to hit on 3s is a big deal. Yeah, That's what that gives him, right? If he's in combat with the units that, are, that have the skeleton keyword, then they can use right. his melee value. Correct. And if you notice, everything in my list has a skeleton keyword. Well, you're doubling down. I think that's the one thing about Kings of War. There's an important list building thing, which is if, if, if you have something that can leverage a keyword, better off to double down on it. And he's got a few cool tricks uh, on him as well. I, I do like his regeneration five. He is nimble, you know, a chariot. He is a TC one and crushing two. So he doesn't hit super hard but he does hit pretty hard uh hitting on threes with tc1 and crushing strength two um and he's very inspiring an 18 inch bubble is pretty good well the big thing is i've got alchemist curse you've taken knowledgeable one which i'm which is i assume to so that you can take alchemist curse the higher level right and then host shadow beast and surge so you've got surge eight host battle host shadow beast four and Alchemist Curse 4. The idea with the host Shadow Beast, if I have to kill whatever the horde's in and I can't get my chariots into it, I could move this guy in. He makes my whole horde hit on threes. And host Shadow Beast on, on my horde. Just the extra attacks hitting on three up with crushing three. It's, it's just going to help them kill whatever they're in combat with. As I know hitting on fives with 30 attacks wasn't that great. But when all of a sudden they're hitting on threes... It's a big difference. That's another whole other 10 hit. A defense five at dash 17 is, is a tough nut to crack. And the fact that he's on a 50 wide base because he's on a chariot means they could potentially get two units into him, which if, 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 if they're going to apply the amount of force required to kill him, that means now, even if they do kill him, you get to, you've kind of taken control of the initiative in, in that regard, I guess. Right. Which was, again, the whole idea of the, the two big hordes uh, that I've got. So I'm again I'm kind of doubling down and building redundancy here with the list, um, and it kind of moves right into the, this third character that I've got, the cursed high priest, uh, who's also a tier three caster. So he is also inspiring. He he has reanimator for each friendly core skeleton unit within six inches. You may reroll one dice that failed to for drain life, fireball, hex, 
heal or surge weakness. So basically all, all the spells, <laughs> all the regular spells. And so for him, it's, it's heal and drain life. So for each unit within six, he can reroll one miss, which is awesome. Uh, I mean, it's, it makes it, you know, again, you're doubling down on that skeleton keyword. Um, and of course he's got heal drain life. He is a, a very offensive caster. Uh, I mean, of course, drain life. I can, I can get him up close. Um, he is, I did give him an undead horse. He is cavalry. So he is going to be speed eight. Well, that's important though, because I, I, yeah, because I mean, not only is he a little, I mean, a little faster, but now he's got height too. Right. So he can see over stuff and, and actually see, like if you wanted to put him behind skeletons, warriors, you could do that. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, it gives you more right. options. The one thing that, so, so this list has got 13 units for a total of 24 unit strength, which is probably pretty good uh, at, at 2010 uh, or 2010 points. What's interesting is going to be how it fares, right? I, I, I've i never seen a list like this before. Usually there's more monsters or there are some monsters in the, the Empire Dust list, list that we see, uh, but you're really, you really are diving re- well into the skeleton keyword mechanic. And so it's going to be interesting to see how you go. What, what's interesting is you do not have really any hammers, right? You don't have anything. You're going to go, Oh, I can send this unit in and I can, there's no blenders. And, and to be fair, maybe there really isn't a blender to be found in the empire dust list. And uh, I think, you know, leveraging the Amorite Pharaoh to give other units with a skeleton keyword, the three plus Malay value, that's about as good as you're going to do. Right. And if you can get the Legion in there, you know, uh, 20 attacks hitting on 20 attacks with D six rampage. Right. Um, you know, is, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I'm curious to see how it goes. I, I, uh, normally the monsters that we see are there for really one purpose, which is they, they normally have crushing three or they have crushing four, like in the case of a giant. And I wonder if, you know, you're really only guy that really has a lot of crushing strength is, is your Ammonite Pharaoh, you know, um, the rest are all kind of, they're all TC2, right? Um, so it's going to be interesting if, if you were to run up against, uh, let's say, a defense six, you know, maybe a dwarf line that has defense six or a uh, force of nature. So what's going to be interesting is as you get a chance to play this army against the 28 other armies, if you find that it works real well in some scenarios and against some certain armies, and there's some that, that, that you need, you need some help in. And if you have to come back and adjust, you know, the one area that you probably could adjust, maybe you, you do have a lot of points in casket of the damned and you do have a lot of points in spell casting. Spell casting is very important for EOD. So you gotta, you gotta put your money there. You know, if you have three spells, you can only cast one per turn. It makes you a Jack of all trades, but Mm. the cost of that is it's, you know, it's an extra gosh, 75 points, something like that you know, 80 points. Yeah. You might come down and you might go, you know what? I, I like alchemist curse and I like host shadow beast, but you might find that one is better than, I mean, if you're using alchemist curse, that means you're not in combat. You can't cast it if you're in combat, whereas house shadow beast, you can. And so because you're trying to leverage his Malay three plus, you might find, even though alchemist curse is great, you might find it's better to have the alchemist curse on the cursed high priest. Cause he's already spellcaster three, right? Without taking the knowledgeable, Long story short, you're going to learn a lot from your first few games, and you're probably make some changes to the list. I'm expecting to. It's a good place to start, though, right? You you put some thought into what you've created. Okay, on paper, this is what I'm going to do. Does it actually operate the way I anticipate? 
You've built this list. What are you expecting? I'm not expecting to kill a whole lot of stuff, to be honest with you. If it dies, it's because I grinded it out and just outlasted my opponent, which is kind of where I'm kind of leaning with this list. I firmly believe that the scoring systems that we use does have an impact on the type of armies that are more effective. So we should say for King of Memphis 3, we're using a major win, minor win, draw, and then minor loss, major loss scoring system. But there is no kill points or attrition points. So it's literally how how you know how you do on the uh, the in the scenario, and then there's bonus objectives, right? And so what's interesting about that is this list will probably do pretty good in that scenario because you said something. You said this list isn't going to kill stuff, right? If there are other sc- scoring systems like blackjack where they have plus five, it's the difference between what your opponent and you killed, right? It makes it go up or down. Um, or in the case of Northern Kings, which is a scoring system where it's just straight up, what did you kill? You're not going to be getting those extra points. Maybe talk to me about that. You, you know, you have a lot of experience with 40K and other game systems. How does 40K scoring system? Well, first of all, do you guys only have the one? Is it just ITC? Like, maybe walk me through how many different scoring systems you have. And are there different scoring systems that affect list construction or the effectiveness of a list differently? So, for 40K, you've got all the same primary objectives and secondary objectives pretty much throughout every event that you're going to go to um, as for the very large events. So there's not going to be any differentiation on how things are scored at all. So basically you pick three secondary objectives with your army, um, try and score those. And normally in list construction, you're like, all right, what secondaries am I going to build towards? And, um, then you just kind of build that way in such a way that you don't also give up your primary objectives, which are the, you know, five, four to six objectives on the game where you have to hold at the start of your turn. So um, the biggest deciding factor for a competitive army list um, prior to that for an event actually has nothing to do with the way the missions are scored. It's the terrain layout that the the event is going to use. So there are two main event layouts. There's Games Workshop's um, event layout, which is the same on every table for specific missions. So you can practice with that terrain pretty much anywhere you go. Um, and then there's a one called player place terrain where the players go back and forth and place the terrain as, as such. And both of them are uh, favoring in a different types of, of army construction. So um, I don't see that a whole lot in Kings of War with the terrain. Um, pretty much everything is based on the scenarios and like you said, the the way each event is going to score itself. So, yeah, <laughs> you're going to have a completely different army list for two different events with Kings of War. In terms of terrain, it sounds very similar. Kings of War sounds very similar to 40K in the sense that we do have events that have player place terrain. And that is a significant advantage 
to good players, right? <laughs> because they can exploit oh, yeah. it, right? So if they've got an arm with a lot of Pathfinder or they, they're going against the gun line that has a lot of shooting, you can certainly use terrain to your advantage. Typically, we have a set layout that a lot of people use. It's the Giant Dwarf Pack, which is available at Dash 28.org. There's like 12 different maps and we've been using them for years. These map packs basically have 10 pieces of terrain. You have two hills, two blocking terrain, two forests, two difficult terrains and and two obstacles for 10 pieces. And they show where they go. Right. And, and, and it's relatively balanced in general. There's like rules, like they don't put any hills in the deployment zone to give, you know, war engines and shooting an advantage. But what's interesting is that uh, what I've also noticed is that uh, depending on what region you're in, there's really no consistency between how big the pieces are. Because it's not just about the amount of pieces of terrain you have, it's how big they are. And, and what's really striking is I was listening to a, a 40K podcast called Forge the Narrative, and they were talking about the LVO event. And I guess there was some uh, consternation about some of the tables at LVO really kind of swung games one way or the other. You haven't played a game yet. What are you looking for for terrain in terms of minimizing the impact on the game, or or maybe or maybe you do want it to impact the game? Or I guess what I'm saying is, do you want terrain to be a neutral party? Player plays terrain is its own thing because, well, I mean it's it's in the hands of the players. But if you have a, a table layout, right? Do you want it to be symmetrical? Do you want it to be balanced? Do you want it to be neutral in the sense that it doesn't really hurt you as a player? Just talk to me about that. Terrain from a new player, new to wargaming in general, is neutral. As somebody who's been in it for a while, it is exactly the opposite. Um, uh, I I don't know how many times I've been destroyed because of a terrain piece, <laughs> or and I don't know how many times I've built an entire game's uh, premise on uh, the one piece of impassable terrain on the table, you know, so it has a very huge factor in, in games like this. You notice I already tried to mitigate some terrain with, by putting the Sir Jesse's boots of striding on my, my Legion. Biggest unit that's going to be out there moving through stuff, trying to mitigate the effect of that. Yeah. With this list, I'm trying to mitigate terrain as much as possible. Me being shambling is, is nice for terrain. Uh, if I recall, it was um, if you surge into terrain and do a combat, you'll still be hindered. But, you know, to your point, though, your stuff is all fearless. So even if you do get punched first, you're probably still going to be around for the counter punch. And remember, on a counter charge, you're never hindered. There, there's certainly an advantage to taking that, for you know, and you have the unit like uh, the, the Horde of spearman with the dragon shard shield that's a perfect unit to put in the woods all right take a charge yeah uh, and then and then if they want and if you do want to charge them you're not out anything i mean you're still hitting on fives no matter what you do for terrain it's going to impact the game one way or the other the best maps the best terrain layouts take into account the scenario right because what you don't want is oh we're playing dominate which is get everybody within 12 inches of the circle oh by the way there's a 15 inch like a big piece of blocking terrain right in the middle of the table. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, that that right there is going to, in some cases, eliminate what units can even score because they may not even physically be able to get 50% of their base in, in the scoring zone. Right. It's interesting because I've kind of leaned away from player place terrain. Uh, well, especially at my events because my events are trying to be more new player friendly. And I think 
that's like one more skill that you have to learn right oh how do i play how do i deploy the terrain to make a you know to, to make maximum advantage by my army but on the same token you know at, i think like masters where you are playing at the highest level where you've got the 64 best players in the country playing it's like well you could make the argument that they should be they should be capable of that right that's i mean they're the best players they should be capable of they should have that skill set honed narratively it makes the game kind of look stupid sometimes because when you do player to place terrain you're playing you're placing the train not for the aesthetics or the narrative of the, of it but for specifically game interaction so you end up with like weird situations where like like you you have the the army that has a bunch of shooting the last thing they want is a bunch of forests or hills between you so you end up with stuff in the corners right right is player place terrain common in 40k or is it more use the the map packs normally at smaller events you're going to use the map packs and a lot of the really large events use player place terrain and the reason they do that is it makes it more skill-based well it also makes it easier on the tos right at at kings of memphis we historically have done you know maps now one of the things that's interesting uh, that's a trend that's when you are using map packs one of the more current trends in kings of war is that during this round where we're all playing the same scenario, everybody's using the same map. The terrain could be slightly different, right? It might have aesthetically different. Maybe some of the pieces are slightly different sizes, but like the layout itself is the same on every table. And I think the, the, the impetus for doing that is that it's just one less variable, you know, uh, Oh crap. I'm going to lose because I'm on this table, right. Versus that table trying to reduce some of the, uh, the randomness, I guess, of, 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 which table are you on? Right. I can't wait for you to get your first game and, and to have the same conversation after you've had a game and go, oh, I was completely like, you're either going to be one of two things. Andy, you're going to come in and go, I'm an idiot savant. I got this down. I'm ready to crush dreams. Right. Or you're going to be like, well, that was an eye opening experience. And I learned a few things, and, you know, and what are the next steps to adjusting or dating or tweaking your list? What army do you want to play against? So we're going to be playing this week. What, what army do you want to play against? I didn't really think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it matters that much, to be honest. Okay. If it's a very shooty army. That's something that you probably want to consider, too. Obviously, as you play more, you learn the meta that we play in. You know the type of armies that are showing up. If you find you are playing in a very shooty meta, Veil of Shadows is, is, a, is a good thing, right? Like, it's a sp- it's a, a spell that you can take to make everybody, mind, you know, make everybody stealthy. Flip side of that is if you find that there's not a lot of shooting, well, then you've kind of wasted your points because it's really not useful because it doesn't work against most spells, really just regular shooting. It's a, it's a weird thing because there's so many armies, right? There's 29 armies, and you could argue some of them play very similar, like Kingdoms of Men and Rodia have a similar play style. Is it common in other games to have like the master and the theme list structure where, you know, like you probably noticed some of our lists have the theme uh, moniker where they're, tied to a master list that could take certain units of those. Uh, and then they have some additional special units that are, that are in to, to, to kind of separate them from the master army. Is that common in other game systems? I mean, is that how space Marines work? Like, do you all like, this is the space Marine list, but then if you're Imperial fist, you've got these differences or it used to be that way. Now it's very spread. So a space wolf list is going to be completely different from an iron hands list, which is going to be completely different from a blood angels list, even though they're all space Marines. I'm I'm really excited about uh, having the same conversation after your first game. Before we close out, what's the most exciting thing about Kings of War? I haven't played a game yet, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the 
movement matters a lot in this game. Um, I can tell just from reading the rules, and I've watched a few games. But, yeah, movement is huge. In 40K, people will say, you know, even if you watch a game at 40K at high level, like pop into an Art of War game or something, at some point in the game, they're like nonchalantly moving models an average of their distance, basically. So if they move six inches, then they'll move like, you know, four and a half on their objective and just by picking up the whole unit and setting it down on top of the the objective. You you don't want to do that in this because it seems like every facing, every angle, it, it really matters. And that's one of the things I like about it. It's also a distinction, obviously, 40K or Age of Sigmar. I mean, those are, they're not, I don't want to call them a skirmish game, but they are individually based models. And so line of sight has different implications. Uh, facings have different implications. In this game, your facing is super important, right? It, as much as how far away are you from the enemy, right? You know, right. You hit on a, a central theme, though, I think, or a key point there, which is movement matters. You know, I think somebody said it best, you know, terrain also matters. And, and it's important that you either have to be, you, you need to have terrain mitigation to go through the terrain, like, like a pathfinder, or you got to be fast enough to get around it. Deployment also is a big part, especially for armies that don't have redeployment shenanigans, right? Because like Kingdoms of Man has a special character that allows you to redeploy D3 units after, you know, after deployment. Your army is a good example. Like you've got to get deployment right, <laughs> right? Which is yeah. why you've got the scrying gem, because if you don't get the, if you don't get those spearmen in the right spot, for example, if they're on the wrong flank, they're on the wrong flank. There's nothing you can do about it. No amount of magical surge is going to get them over there in time. Andy, I appreciate the time. Really enjoyed our chat. We'll, we'll be back again for another conversation with Andy as soon as he has his first couple games. And we, he'll come back and he'll probably say, uh, well, he's either going to say one of two things. This was the perfect list or, oh man, this list was... There were some holes that I didn't that I didn't anticipate. I'm sure at this point Jeff Woodin is shaking in his boots. <laughs> well, awesome. That's going to do us tonight. And until next time, keep countercharging. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at countercharge15, or by commenting on the Countercharge Kings of War podcast Facebook group. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons. 